Chris Brown and welcome to episode 8 of Radicals and Conversation in-house. The podcast series from Pluto Press produced in collaboration with Bookhouse, an independent bookshop located in the heart of Bristol. Alongside our regular show, we're also creating episodes that have been recorded on location in Bookhouse as part of their in-house events programme. These events feature authors of some of the most exciting radical non-fiction being published today. This month's episode was recorded on the 17th of May, the same week as Nakba Day, of course this year commemorating the 75th anniversary of the Nakba and the displacement of hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from their homeland. Hill Akid came to Bookhouse to talk about their new book, Friends of Israel, The Backlash Against Palestine Solidarity, which was published by Verso back in April. Hill Akid is a writer, investigative researcher and an activist with a background in political sociology, whose work has appeared in The Guardian, Independent, Sky News and Al Jazeera. They're also a contributor to What is Islamophobia, Racism, Social Movements and the State. Here, Hill is in conversation with Nazanin Masumi, co-editor of the aforementioned collection and a senior lecturer in the Department of Sociology, Philosophy and Anthropology at the University of Exeter. They discuss the activities of Israel's advocates in Britain, showing how they contribute to maintaining Israeli apartheid as they seek to repress a rising tide of solidarity with Palestinians expressed through the boycott, divestment and sanctions BDS movement. They also consider the parallels with apartheid South Africa and assess the recent protests in Israel around judicial reform. Friends of Israel is available to buy online or in store from Bookhouse. Just head over to their website, bookhousebristol.com, for more information. So without further ado, here are Hill Akid and Nazanin Masumi on Radicals and Conversation in-house. So welcome everyone to the book launch of Friends of Israel, The Backlash Against Palestine Solidarity. The author is Hill Akid. I'm Naz, Nazanin Masumi. I work at the University of Exeter. I've um, known Hill for a long time. We've done some work together in the past. And I'm very excited to introduce you all to this book and really um, excited about this kind of conversation we're going to have tonight. Um, just to introduce the author, Hill Akid is a writer, investigative researcher, and activist uh, with a background in political sociology. Um, whose work has appeared in The Guardian, The Independent, Sky News, Al Jazeera, um, as well as volumes in uh, Pluto Press and Z Books and Bloomsbury. Friends of Israel, The Backlash Against Palestine Solidarity is their first book. I've read the book and I think it's a very, very important book. I, don't, I also want to stress that this is not an easy topic to write about or even talk about. And I think you've done an excellent job. I think you've centred Palestinian oppression and liberation at the same time as challenging anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. It's a very comprehensive study. The research methods are great. It covers a wide range of sources. And it's an important book for both those kind of seeking to build solidarity with Palestinians, but also I think it's an essential read for sociologists, especially those who are interested, or anyone, not just sociologists, that are interested in the study of social movements more widely. And I think it's a really important contribution. So thank you for doing it. And um, if you haven't read it or bought it, I think you should all do so tonight. <laughs> so yeah, so thank you. And so I'm just going to ask a couple of questions and then hopefully you can respond. If you could maybe start 
uh, with sort of saying a little bit about um, what's currently happening in Palestine and how that is connected uh, to the subject that's tackled in this book. Yeah, sure. Thanks a lot for that nice introduction, Nars. Hi, everyone, and thanks for coming. Uh, I'm pleased that you made it down because yesterday I tweeted that the event was yesterday. Darren, the shop manager, had to message me being like, uh, is that a slip-up? And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm losing my head. Yeah, no, it's really nice for you to come down. So, yeah, to answer your question, Nars, um, as everyone here will know, what's happening in Palestine now is um, we've just marked the 75th anniversary of the Nakba, the expulsion of over 750,000 indigenous Palestinians. And simultaneously, we've seen in recent weeks dozens of Palestinians in Gaza killed by the Israeli military. Now, Gaza is a 365-kilometer-square strip of land. I've just, I wanted to read out a couple of the names of some of the children that were killed in recent weeks because I think it's important to... I don't want to say humanized because I think that's quite a banal term, but like, you know, Haja Khalil Salah Al-Batini was four years old and was killed in recent weeks. Brother and sister Ali and Maya, Tariq Ibrahim, Izzuddin, eight and ten-year-old, killed in recent weeks. And, you know, we should say their, their names because they've been innocent victims of Israeli settler colonialism and, and apartheid. The other important context, of course, is that Israel has its most far-right government in history. And Palestinians have not been, their resistance has been daily, but they've not been able to create any change uh, throughout decades of Israeli governments. But of course, they're not going to get any change from the most far right in history. And they haven't been supported by governments like ours either. In fact, quite the contrary. Obviously, our government has for decades enabled Israeli settler colonialism. And, and that's the context for why the BDS call was made in 2005. So the boycott, divestment and sanctions is a call from Palestinian civil society for people to people of conscience around the world and civil society organizations to boycott uh, Israel and in complicit institutions and companies and divest from and, and sanction this country um, until it complies with international law and upholds human rights, okay? So what have we seen our government do? And this is why I'm getting to how it connects to kind of the book really, which is about British complicity fundamentally. What our government has done, rather than sort of apologising for the Balfour Declaration of 1917 and the ongoing complicity, which is part of the ongoing NACBA, Actually, we've heard in recent days that it's about to push forward with legislation to outlaw BDS in this country and to prevent local authorities from taking ethical kind of concerns into account when they make procurement decisions and investment decisions. So that's not even going to just affect BDS campaigners. It's also about fossil fuel investment, the tobacco industry, the arms trade, public health. So it's just a, a part of this government's authoritarian and racist agenda. And part of Britain's ongoing complicity, as I said, you know, which goes back not just to Balfour, but to the 30 years in which this country ruled Palestine under the mandate. And I think that is kind of part of what I wanted this book to sort of draw more attention to, because we have this, you know, colonial amnesia in this country about our history, not just in Palestine, but everywhere. And I think that's what I tried to frame the book in and to examine the Zionist movement in this country, not as foreign influence, but as an example of British complicity. Thank you. That's really helpful. And um, it takes me on to my next question. You are specifically writing about the Zionist movement in Britain. And, you know, there is a lot written about Israel-Palestine. Um, but why do you think that there's so little that's written specifically about the Zionist movement in Britain? Yes, yeah, a good question. I mean, one of the things probably is like the practical challenges of researching this movement. I mean, all kind of propaganda, lobbying, PR is quite opaque, and so the lack of transparency there. But obviously, the predominant thing is the political issues around it. Um, so there's been obviously an attempt to conflate for quite a long time now, any criticism of Zionism and the state of Israel with 
anti-Semitism, and that's partly a deliberate ploy on the part of the Zionist movement to prevent people scrutinizing the Zionist movement. Um, I think we may talk more about you know, things like the IHRA, which I think is an illegitimate attempt to basically use the Jewish community as human shields to protect Israeli apartheid. So that's part of the problem. But there's also, of course, like very legitimate and, and valid fears that people have about inadvertently stoking very real anti-Semitic tropes that are out there. Okay, So I don't think we should be complacent about the fact that anti-Semitism is on the rise and that there's a very ignominious history of real conspiracies about quote-unquote Jewish power. And so what I try to do in this book is like, well, I struggled myself with it, but I like, hopefully I found the words to walk what can feel like a bit of a tightrope between finding the way to oppose Israeli apartheid and those who defend it, and at the same time be very firmly opposing anti-Semitism. I think that requires something we all need to kind of work on is like the racial literacy around that to have the confidence to do that well, with confidence and with competence um, to navigate that like tightrope. Um, and I think also what I found researching this topic was that it is a total myth, right? The support for Israel does not map onto ethno-religious constituencies. It maps onto political constituencies. We'll talk more about that, I'm sure. But like, you know, Christian Zionism, for example, is a massively important strand of the Zionist movement, increasingly important as, as support for Israeli apartheid vanishes amongst Jewish communities in which it's always been contingent. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that, no, 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 that's great, that's great. And I, and I think then what I would say is then how would your work, how do you think the way you're, you're talking about it as a sort of the Zionist movement and you're using that terminology, um, how does that differ from stuff that's been written about, say, the Israel lobby? I'm thinking of Mershimer's book. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. You know, so if you could say a little bit about why the Zionist movement, why not the Israel lobby? You know, how does that differ and, mm -hmm. and why? And why is it a useful distinction? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so people may have heard of Mershimer Waltz's 2007 book, um, The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy. It's getting quite old now, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, that, um, yeah, no, it was a useful intervention in terms of like documenting this topic, which is often like understudied, despite there being a loads of real world activity. But I think my approach is quite different or the fact they get the facts right. But my analysis is quite different. My political analysis or my interpretation of those facts is quite different. OK, so they, as the title of their book suggests, their basic argument is that the Israel lobby like undermines US foreign policy and the national interest. And my approach is to say, first of all, the national interest doesn't really exist. And the idea of that kind of glosses over class, gender, racial differences, which, you know, actually mean the very stuff of domestic politics is conflict over those things. And secondly, that like I don't see whether we want to call it the Zionist movement or the Israel lobby as an example of foreign influence. And so most supporters of Israel in this country are British and the British support for Israel has a very long history um, and th those kind of foreign influence narratives and the national interest stuff kind of goes hand in hand. I am not interested in like loyalty to the British state. I'm not arguing people should be supporting um, Britain and loyal to Britain because Britain has its own array of racist policies and I think that support for Israel is just one of them and you know if you look historically at why Britain supported the Zionist movement in the early 20th century because it served the interests of the British Empire in the same way that Israel in many ways today serves the interests of US Empire. So I'm not interested in saying like, oh, you know, the Israel lobby are undermining British interests, which can sometimes be essentially, I think, the implication of Mir Waltz's study. Instead, I tried to position it as an example of British racism and in the context of British racism, but also to like, as you say, like keep 
Palestinians in the picture a bit, they're almost invisible in Mirsham Ben Walt's book. And mm. um, they're quite interested in trying to show pro-Israel influence, but not, I think, they also don't pay any attention to like resistance, mm. whether that's Palestinian resistance or like in this case, to be fair, the BDS movement was very new then. But what I focus on a lot in my book is repression of BDS because that's mm. where you see the power of pro-Israel forces most, but you don't see it actually that much in central government because they don't have to work too hard. You know, most MPs, or a lot of MPs are very much on board. Mm. So you see it in civil society because that's where BDS initiatives emerge and then they get repressed. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really useful. And I think what I find useful like, about the way you approach it as a sort of movement is this sort of two questions because I'm interested in movements and I also think that's a, a good way of, of looking at it. But Firstly, it's it's looking at the relationship between this movement mm -hmm. and another movement mm -hmm. in relation to Palestine solidarity mm -hmm. activism. Mm -hmm. So two questions. One, about why do you think it was necessary mm -hmm. to look at this in terms of like pro-Israeli actors or the Zionist movement, mm -hmm. looking at their activities in relation specifically to the sort of solidarity activism of pro-Palestinian activism, if you like. Mm -hmm. So, so that would be my first question, and then, I, and then the other question would be about the types of like strategies and tactics of the Zionist movement, because you talk about mm -hmm. that a lot in, in your book as well. So, if you could just say a little bit about why you think it's important to mm. look at this work in relation specifically to the solidarity movement, and then a little bit about what types of strategies and tactics you look at, and because um, mm -hmm. there's quite a sort of diverse range. Yeah, I mean, I realised I forgot to answer one part of your initial question, which was about why I conceptualise it more as a Zionist movement mm. than the Israel lobby. I mean, it seems like maybe like a subtle terminology thing, but I guess just to quickly say why I do that, I think firstly, like, at the height of the, like, Labour anti-Semitism furore, there were a lot, some voices anyway, saying, oh, we need to stop talking about Zionism or using the word Zionism. Like, I actually disagree with that. Like, I think we need to, again, become, like, more literate and understand what it is and be able to talk about it historically and accurately. Not using it as a term of abuse, as the Chakrabarti report said, but um, certainly not, like, not talking about it because it's... It is fundamental and so but also understanding there are different strands of this movement like from revisionist Zionism to liberal Zionism and that the Zionist movement is not a monolithic block or the Israel lobby is not a monolithic block there's there's consultation within it but at the same time obviously it coheres around the idea of a, of a Jewish state which for Palestinians has been inherently exclusionary so that's why you know I think it's fine to say Zionist as well as Israel I mean people can also basically say that Zionism is what Israel does so like that's why I use them interchangeably. In terms of just the movement thing, um, well, two reasons, I guess. Like one is that like a lobby would suggest like uh, elite influencing activities. And actually what the Zionist movement does is way more broad than that. So they do obviously um, talk to politicians and take them on trips and make political donations. But there's also media influence going on. There's also like grassroots activism being fostered. There's also like chairs of Israel studies being set up at universities. And there's also legal cases being brought. So like it's a much more broad range of activities that movement kind of just encapsulates a bit better. The second reason though is that, um, you know, something like the National Rifle Association in the US, right, would be like a classic lobby and it's like boundaried within uh, the borders of the United States. The, the Zionist movement has from its very inception been transnational and border crossing. And while I've, I've emphasized that the British Zionist movement is very much a part of British society, it's not some foreign influence. It's also very much connected to the US movement and obviously what's happening in Israel. So that's just answered the previous question there. And I think in the previous answer, I answered your second question about why we need to 
study it in relation to the Palestine Solidarity Movement, and that's because, as I said, firstly, I just think it's politically important to center the resistance that Palestinians and their allies are engaging in, um, but also it's because you, where you see the influence happening is um, when you look at civil society, because that's where BDS initiatives are emerging, whether it's like a random like theater in North London or a university or a religious institution. This is where people of conscience are standing up and saying, we want to do what we can to sever our ties with Israeli apartheid in solidarity with Palestinian people. And that's where you see um, Zionist and pro-Israel actors coming and trying to stamp out that solidarity. So, you know, really the smallest of arenas, you can see it, that I think in recent weeks, there was a children's hospital in London where UK Lawyers for Israel, a very, very right-wing group, pressured them to take off the walls some art made by children in Gaza. I mean, that's the level of kind of whack-a-mole that they're, they're, and how threatened they are by any expression of sort of Palestinian identity or resistance. Politically speaking, I hope the book is... It's not just really an academic study. I want it to be a useful resource for the solidarity movement, um, which is where my interest in studying this topic came out from doing solidarity activism. And I hope that talking about the power of the Israel lobby or the Zionist movement is not intimidating and doesn't overstate its power and actually makes people just feel like, you know, I suppose, quote unquote, know your enemy, but in a, in a sort of empowering way, because we do need to understand, you know, that there are arenas in which we're dealing with uh, some quite powerful actors, but also not to overstate its power and say like the reason the Zionist movement has had to mobilize in recent years is because of the power of the BDS movement and solidarity activism. Mm. And it's very scared by the, the people power which the Palestinian cause can, can marshal, yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's very important. You know, in terms of that, in terms of the sort of history of, I don't know, similar solidarity struggles, in the book you make some sort of historical parallels between the way that Israel and its allies um, have sought to oppose the BDS movement and the way that the South African government sought to counter the boycott movement it faced during the sort of apartheid years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, could you maybe kind of expand a little bit on that and uh, tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, everyone will probably be familiar with the fact that, you know, the apartheid framework is not just something that applies in South Africa, but that... Palestinians have been saying for decades applies to what's happening in Israel-Palestine as well. And more recently, big uh, human rights NGOs like Amnesty and Human Rights, which have said is happening in Palestine, right? So it's defined in the Rome statute, I think, as... Um, oh, I can't remember the definition. I'm not going to try and define Inhuman acts of... Um, no, I'm not going to try and define it. I can't. It's in the book. Page one. Um, <laughs> anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that, like, that apartheid, um, not even an analogy, the, the apartheid parallel, the apartheid reality is uh, quite commonly made, the, the link between South Africa and Israel, the many different links. You know, it was also 1948 that like apartheid really established itself in, in South Africa as well. And lots of, you know, arms trading and nuclear weapons sharing and stuff going on between them. But the, the parallel I talk about most in the book is about how apartheid South Africa fought back against the boycott that targeted it for many decades. My main like source was Ron Nixon's book, which I really recommend. He's an ex New York Times journalist, it's very readable. And like, yeah, he talks about basically how the Ministry's information in South Africa, particularly men called Connie Mulder and Eshel Rudy, masterminded this like propaganda strategy to fight the boycott because they felt it was like a national security threat. And they used the kind of goodwill of a lot of like pro-apartheid South African businessmen. And most interestingly, like. Uh, civil society organizations and front groups um, around the world who are often covertly funded by the South African regime. 
So like some of the names of the, some of the groups that were active in the UK between like the 1960s and 1980s were like the Club of Ten, the International Freedom Foundation, um, the South Africa Foundation. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure all of them were like covertly funded, but, but some were. Um, check Ron Nixon's book for that. But um, just to like, if I can like divert a tiny bit into like a little bit of very loose conceptual like thinking that I mentioned in the book is like, in, around the turn of the millennium, people who write about like diplomacy and help nation states to like promote their own image, develop this, what they call new public diplomacy. So obviously traditional diplomacy is like between representative, official representatives of nation states. Public diplomacy is a relationship that the state kind of enjoys or has with a, a foreign public. And new public diplomacy involved like, what was new about it is it involved like non-governmental actors in promoting that, that image, okay? So what I kind of argue in the book is that long before that great idea is come up with by scholars at around the turn of the millennium, the South African government was doing it during apartheid, that in the Cold War some similar stuff happened. And I think you know, Nas, from your work on Prevent that some similar stuff has happened. And the basic idea is that if you have third parties like delivering your message, they're gonna seem more credible than you as the official government spokesman of your apartheid state. So Israel, you know, is doing many of the same things. So you talk, you asked me, and I forgot to answer the previous question about the strategies it uses in different arena. Like, particularly in lawfare, there's a lot of state-private networks, and particularly organisations called UK Lawyers for Israel, which I've already mentioned. You know, in Parliament, there's very close links between Labour Friends of Israel and the Israeli Embassy. And there was an Al Jazeera documentary a few years ago, like, which had a lot of that stuff in it. And internationally, the Israeli government set up a body called Kela Shlomo or Solomon Sling, which was renamed Concert more recently. But effectively, it's a means for the Israeli government to fund pro-Israel organizations like one step removed so that they get around sort of U.S. legislation and stuff. Um, but like there's Israeli ministers on the board of it. And that's what they're doing. They're trying to channel funding because spontaneous support for Israel doesn't really, or there's not enough of it. And so they're, um, and even then they're finding it hard to find actors who will accept this money. But that's the basic idea. And it very much echoes what's happening in South Africa. And I wanted to mention a South Africa parallel because I don't want people to exceptionalize Israel or, you know, think it's some kind of conspiracy theory all about Israel. It's actually just what apartheid states do. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. And I guess it's like, like you say, it's like, one, it's a response to the fact that there has been a success in terms of the BDS movement and the pro-Palestinian solidarity movement. And therefore, there's a need to sort of develop some kind of attempts to mobilize civil society in their interests. Um, and it's also a way of being able to distance the state from their own activities somehow if it, if it goes pear-shaped. or And those strategies are used throughout history in various different environments. And I think that's a really interesting part of, of what you've looked at. But going back to the issue of, to some extent, the fact that the repression of the pro-Palestinian movement is partly a result of, to some extent, its success... The other key thing that you mentioned is the, the support for Israeli apartheid maps onto political rather than ethnic or religious constituencies mm -hmm. and that evangelical right-wing Christian Zionists are increasingly the core base mm -hmm. in terms of the support for Israeli apartheid and um, younger people particularly from Jewish communities are increasingly dissociating themselves from Zionism. So could you perhaps elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, I mean, it's really important to grasp this. And I guess, you know, if we go right back to the Balfour Declaration, right, Arthur Balfour is a Christian Zionist. And a lot of the reason that 
British ministers like Michael Gove support Israel today is based in Christian Zionism, which she has like anti-Semitic tendencies within itself, but nonetheless, this is who the Israeli government and Israeli embassy here are like happy to ally with. So in this country, like Christian Friends of Israel has, I think it was founded in the mid eighties and they've been for a very long time doing this like joint lobby of parliament every year with the Zionist Federation. More recently, like there's a UK branch of uh, Christians United for Israel set up. That's a massive right-wing organization uh, founded by the evangelical pastor John Hagee that has claims to be the biggest pro-Israel grassroots um, organization in the US with over a million members. And then you've got an organization here as well called uh, We Believe in Israel, which is a spin-off from BICOM, where the main pro-Israel organizations. BICOM focuses on the media, but We Believe in Israel was about trying to foster some grassroots support for Israel. And, and it's run by a guy called Luke Akers, who's actually on the NEC of a Labour Party. I see some nods, some rolling eyes. Yeah, Luke Akers used to be a lobbyist for the arms trade. And his day job is working at We Believe in Israel. I don't know, he's not a Christian Zionist, but he's also not Jewish. He's just politically a Zionist, right? So that's a good example of it, maps on. And actually, what's interesting is that he has talked about how part of his aim with this organization is to rejuvenate a lost era of Jewish activism for Israel because it's not happening anymore. There was a time when Israel could draw quite large protests, overwhelmingly from the Jewish community, but that doesn't happen anymore. And so actually you've got this Luke Akers guy trying to tell Jewish people, you should be supporting Israel, and it's not really happening. And when they surveyed their own members, they found that the majority were identified as Christians. So, so that's the reality of like grassroots activism today. Yeah, and then on the on the flip side, like I think it's really important to, for people to understand that like Jewish support for Zionism has always been contingent, has always been an issue of controversy. So in the early 1900s, um, when Theodore Herschel, one of the ideological founders of Zionism, comes to visit Britain, him and the other sort of supporters of Zionism find that there's not a lot of support in the Jewish community or elsewhere for Zionism, and that's one of the reasons they set up the Zionist Federation of Great Britain to try and change that. But it's still, you know, the Board of Deputies, which is Britain's main Jewish democratic political organization, is not very sympathetic to, to Zionism for many years. And it's only in the 1930s and 40s when Jewish people start to face severe persecution in Europe culminating in the Holocaust that pretty understandably people start to feel in the Jewish community that maybe we do need a state, where we do need a safe haven. And of course, that's meant catastrophe for the Palestinian people, but that's a major reason that support for Zionism grows within the Jewish community. Um, for many years, therefore, like Jewish organizations such as the board have been generally pro-Israel since the creation of Israel. Um, but now we're seeing, we have been seeing for some time, Jewish support leaking away. So in 2007, I think it was, Independent Jewish Voices was founded by people who wanted to break away, in the Jewish community, who wanted to break away from the board because of its support for Israel over the, the second invasion of Lebanon. And today we're seeing especially, uh, and the Israeli government's own polling shows this, like younger Jewish people in the diaspora completely turned off by Israel as a militaristic, aggressive nation. And, you know, in the US, the rise of Jewish Voice for Peace illustrates that. And here in Britain, we've got like organizations like Naamod and Judas, which are a place for like young people to assert a strong Jewish identity, which is, does not have Zionism in Israel at its heart. And Namods have, who are not necessarily the strongest on like the right of return, I would say, or like out and out supporters of BDS, so not completely uncritical of them, but they have protested against UK lawyers for Israel and right-wing Zionist organizations. So I just think all of that shows that this is an issue of conflict within the Jewish community as within society as a whole, and that we kind of can't repeat that enough because it's really essential to understand, yeah. So I guess the last two questions are sort of about 
sort of broader issues of the book. Mm. Um, and the first is about the fact that you sort of sort of grounded it, the book in the kind of anti-racist perspective and where you sort of situate the Palestinian struggle in a sort of broader sense of anti-racist struggles and the sort of fight for collective liberation. So could you explain why you think it's important to frame it that way? Answer that first and then I'll yeah. tell you the second one. <laughs> I can't hold too much in my head yeah, at one so. time. I, I missed one of your early questions <laughs> entirely. Um, yeah, so I mean, one point in the book I talk about, um, as I mentioned earlier, the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, um, definition of anti-Semitism, which people will probably have heard of and will know that it includes like an example of potential anti-Semitism that is um, calling the state of Israel a racist endeavor. And I think that like the fact that the Labour Party, the parliamentary Labour Party were pushing the, the kind of Corbyn-led Labour leadership to adopt that as an example of potential anti-Semitism at the same time that Israel was passing the nation state law which says that Israel is the state of the Jewish people alone and therefore really codifies the fact that Palestinians are second-class citizens and is a patently racist piece of legislation. For, for me, underlines, like, encapsulates the perversity of, of saying that calling out Israel's racial oppression of Palestinians is itself a form of racism. You know, and it's certainly something that has been pushed by the Israeli government and the Zionist movement, right? Um, at the same time, I tried to, like, situate it in terms of the toxic racial politics of Britain, right? So people will probably also have heard of the Sewell report from a few years back, right? Which was a major gaslighting of communities of color in this country saying that Britain is no longer institutionally racist. So I don't think we should be surprised that at the same time, the Labour Party decided to adopt this policy, which also essentially gaslights Palestinians and says they can't talk about the Nakba. And, you know, for me, that whole episode was like just really, really tragic because I consider myself an anti-racist and I, I think that principled anti-racism sees all forms of racism of anti-racism as like indivisible and actually what the IHRA and what the Zionist movements uh, attempt to redefine anti-semitism to include like uh, criticism of Israel and Zionism as a form of anti-semitism does is it, it creates a zero-sum game where you can't be both opposed to anti-semitism and opposed to Israeli apartheid you can only do sort of one or the other and, and as I said earlier, it kind of, I feel like it uses Jewish people, Jewish communities as human shields for Israeli apartheid, which is so it's really bad for the fight against anti-Semitism, as well as being really bad for Palestinians' liberation struggle and just the general environment of anti-racism in this country, which, as we know, is dire, right? Um, so in terms of the collective liberation bit, then, I guess I like wanted to like have a little bit of criticism of elements of the Palestine Solidarity Movement. Um, I, like at the very conclusion, I used the acronym. You people have probably heard of the acronym PEP, P-E-P, -E which stands for Progressive Except for Palestine, right? Which is when liberals maybe are all, all kind of lefty on lots of things until it gets to Palestine and then they then they're not. But I mentioned this other acronym, which a Palestinian person I know in London mentioned, which is POOP, P-O-O-P. <laughs> and this stands for Progressive Only on Palestine, which unfortunately, like, you do get some people in the Palestine Solidarity Movement who are very single issue and actually not, not supporters of collective liberation. And that is the kind of politics I wanted to push back against because not just on principle, but also because, you know, as Hassan Hanafani says, the Palestinian cause is not just for Palestinians. And, you know, the way that I came to this cause and many others did was from a fundamental belief in, like, human dignity and liberation. And I think it's really fundamental that part of what the Zionist movement and the Israeli government wants to do is to kind of marginalise the Palestine Solidarity Movement from the wider left. And strategically, we need, the Palestine Solidarity Movement needs to stay integrated with Black Lives Matter, with abolitionist organizing, with migrant solidarity organizing, because like 
we have issues in common and we have enemies in common, right? Because Israel is like a model caste rule state and we're only going to resist the oppression of the British government, the Israeli government and stuff, you know, together. So that's why I say like trying to argue against like poop activism. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. <laughs> okay, that's very good. Thank you. And sort of my final question then is basically about the fact that, you know, this is definitely not the easiest subjects to write about or research and I know from knowing you a little bit about some of the you know it's not it's not easy to research this area but I think it would be useful for people to hear a little bit about how you went about researching this book and what were the challenges you faced because mm -hmm. um, it's definitely not easy to do this kind of work. Mm. So there's a mixture I guess the three main like methods I used to gather information were like a bunch of FOIs, so Freedom of Information Requests, which I think, you know, like, academic-y types, scholars, researchers should use more. Obviously, journalists make use of them, and I think if we want to understand how power works behind closed doors, they're really useful. And they're quite exciting as well, because if you get something that someone didn't want you to know, then they're just fun. Mm -hmm. And and for like for the researching lobbying and spin and propaganda, like it's quite essential. And I, you know, some of the chapters in the book are based largely on documents that I got through FOIs. Then there's also some archival research, which um, yeah, I was a bit surprised that the Board of Deputies gave me permission to look in their archives. But again, I found it really exciting, like dusting off some boxes and being like, oh, no one's looked at this 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 stuff from a critical pro-Palestinian perspective before. Again, I found it very surprising that when I applied to do or requested interviews with people uh, some of them spoke to me um, <laughs> because I wasn't I was very like that was part of my doctoral research and I wasn't doing like covert research and I was open about I mean I didn't like hammer it into their faces my perspective but I was you could sort of google my name and I was open about where I was coming from if they asked me plenty of people ignored me or told me that I was biased and a delegitimizer and I didn't want to speak to me. But some people did because they had a score to settle or actually what we found most interesting was some people in the Zionist movement who spoke to me said some quite very, some very critical stuff and we're not, you know, people I mentioned in the book and in the conclusion actually, people who used to be head of the board of deputies and the Jewish Leadership Council come out and said, yeah, Israel is like it's apartheid basically, you know, themselves. So they know it's happening and their, you know, their conscience pricks at them after a while mm. once they often like leave their leadership roles. Mm. And, um, you know, and there's some quite sad stuff as well. I remember interviewing a guy who used to work for APAC in the States, which is the big US lobby group. Mm. And, you know, he effectively said, you know, he truly, he genuinely believed that, you know, if it, the state of Israel didn't exist and BDS, you know, helped to dismantle the Zionist project and create equality for, for Palestinians and Jews, that actually there would just be a second Holocaust, you know? And I found that, I could empathize with that, even though I didn't think it was true and I thought it didn't justify oppression of Palestinians. Mm. So it was interesting doing the research. It took me a very long time. Mm -hmm. I'm glad it's done. Yeah, it was an experience. <laughs> well, very well done. And um, thank you for speaking to us. One of the things that, you know, you, um, you mentioned in the book and you, you also mentioned when I, when I was asking you about the sort of strategies and tactics of the Zionist movement, I think one thing that I guess people are sort of less aware of but is a very important part of the kind of repressive tactics of the Zionist movement in terms of BDS is the kind of lawfare. Um, mm. You could just sort of explain a little bit about what that is and mm. why you think they use it. Just some kind of bit of elaboration on that, that would be helpful. Sure. Yeah, I mean, essentially, I mean, lawfare is quite hard to define, but essentially quite like, a use of a law for, to achieve a political purpose, right? Mm. And so 
in the book, I talk about two organizations in the UK, both of which are quite new, but both of which have suddenly brought big legal cases about BDS and Palestine solidarity. Um, one is called UK Lawyers for Israel, and I trace in the book its very close links to the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs and talk about those state private networks. And another is an organization that calls itself Jewish Human Rights Watch. Yeah. And the latter brought this case against um, Leicester City Council and two Welsh councils after they uh, adopted like motions um, supporting elements of BDS after the 2014 massacre in Gaza Operation uh, Protective Edge where Israel killed over 2,000 Palestinians. Mm. And so, you know, what it tells us is firstly, Israel can't win the argument, right? Because it, how do you defend an apartheid state? Like, how do you defend yeah. that, like killing 2,000, more than 2,000 people, more than 500 kids, you can't. So they're just trying to literally get the courts to say this isn't allowed and you're allowed to do it. And actually that case failed. I mean, it's a long running thing and, you know, it's gone through, I think, the high court and then the appeal court and then the Supreme Court. But ultimately they said they upheld the right to boycott. Um, but the point is it has like a chilling effect on activism. Um, and so there were headline front page newspapers saying like, you know, Basically, if you try to boycott Israel, you'll be sued. And the councils were warned they would have maybe like 200,000, like very punitive costs if they lost the case. Yeah. So it has, it has that chilling effect even if they lose. And partly it also just ties up people who might want to be actually doing BDS activism in like fighting, defending themselves. Yeah. Um, the other front of it, of course, is the attempt to outlaw BDS. And as I mentioned, that, that we're seeing that the government is going to try to launch that soon and that will tried to another way because that because the previous law firm failed to stop councils yeah. doing it they're trying this route now yeah. and i think it's important to say that even if they do pass that law like they can't literally force people that you know they can put in place certain regulations but yeah. there's a really good film out called boycott which talks about some activists in the u.s who've like stood up against like a lot of, like over 30 states individual states in the u.s have passed motions like this but some of them have been struck down as unconstitutional and people are you know, continuing to, to fight that repression because, you know, what it does is it lays bare the face of Israeli apartheid, which, like, has given up all pretense of trying to sort of, yeah, win the argument or persuade people morally and is yeah. just literally trying to use a hammer to coerce people to comply and stop showing solidarity with Palestine. So I think it, yeah. it speaks to, on a more academic level, you know, the capacity of the law to be repressive as well as potentially a tool for liberation. But, um, yeah, there's some very... I mean, I talk in the book about those organisations, but they're, like, extremely right-wing and, yeah... In the last few months, we have seen uh, many demonstrations taking place in Israel, in, especially related to the judicial reform. Mm -hmm. One of the things people are fearing there is that um, if the judiciary uh, reform uh, goes through, then they will lose the support, especially of the US and the people of, um, of democratic countries, basically. And I wanted to tell you whether something is happening in Britain now, uh, as far as you know, in terms of uh, institutional support to Israel related to the judicial reform, actually. Whether it's changing, whether that yes. could jeopardise British support? Yes. Okay, yeah. As you mentioned, yeah, massive protests, unprecedented protests have happened in Israel. And they sort of call themselves democracy protests, but they're rallying under the Israeli flag. So I think there's a, there's a paradox there immediately because you know, Israel is a democracy for its Jewish citizens. It's something very different for Palestinians. Um, and the judicial reform can seem quite technical and uninteresting if you're coming at Israel-Palestine from a sort of perspective of Palestine solidarity. But what's important to understand is that the reason for, a massive part of the reason that the right-wing government, Netanyahu's government, wants to attack the judiciary is because they've been like a very, very moderate pushback against um, some of the most extreme elements of the settlement project and the annexation project. 
in the same way that, um, you know, the British government here has attacked like activist lawyers because they provide some pushback against its anti-migrant policies and that, you know, the US government has not liked the extent to which lawyers have put up some resistance to the human rights abuses of the war on terror. So that's the context for the like attack on judicial reform. I feel like there's almost nothing that Israel can do that actually is is actually going to change the Conservative Party and the Conservative government's support at this stage, right? Like, and if it's true that, it, you know, it's a sad indictment of how little the Tory party and, and British government cares about Palestinians, that they've been like imposing a part of them for decades and nothing has happened. And then this judicial reform bill has come through and it's like, whoa, hang on a second. Um, but at the same time, I actually, we haven't seen when Netanyahu came here, Rishi Sunak welcomed him. He didn't say like, this is the last final straw. So I don't think we can look to the British government to, to take them up on anything. And I think that's why kind of the BDS movement has looked to civil society to create change and create bottom-up pressure to force change, you know. That was Hill Akard and Nazanin Masumi on Radicals and Conversation in-house. You can find out more about the book on bookhousebristol.com along with details about their other forthcoming events, many of which will, of course, appear on this podcast series in due course. If you enjoy the show, then please don't forget to share, rate us and review it wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another in-house episode featuring David Broder in conversation with Professor John Foote about David's new book, Mussolini's Grandchildren, Fascism in Contemporary Italy. And of course, we have the final episodes in our fantastic Locating Legacy series hosted by Gracie Mae Bradley coming out over the next few weeks as well. So do stay tuned for all of those. Until then, thanks very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>